Welcome, everybody, to the EM Over Easy podcast. I am joined by two of my co-hosts, Drew and Tanner. Guys, how are you? Good. Who are you, by the way? I'm Andy. He said Andy. I did, did say Andy. Oh, I did introduce just, my name. Oh. See, I'm already, I'm already not listening to you. That was great. He just completely blacked him out as he was talking and then just tried to rip him. That was great. Yep. That's pretty it, much what I do. It's getting real deep real quick here, folks. Uh, we're all we doing jo- fantastic. We're all doing fantastic. <laughs> but we're joined by two awesome guests, uh, the one and only Salim Rezai South. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. It's been too long. Uh, missed you guys, and uh, I love the banter. And then uh, a good friend of mine, that I, one of my coworkers down here in Florida, Adam Oli Adewala. Double A, thanks so much for hopping on. Hey, you're welcome, man. Thanks for having me. So let's get started kind of with this idea I reached out to both of you really to talk about well-being in EM because I feel like there's a lot going on. If you've been under a rock, uh, COVID is real and it's back with a vengeance with the Delta variant. And I thought this was timely, both because I know AA and Sal, they're big proponents of personal wellness, but I really kind of wanted to bring them on the show to talk about wellness in EM and how I feel like the definition of that's changed in the last year because of COVID, or at least it's been morphed a little bit. And then I think to kind of get your guys' perspective, because you both come at it from a different idea of how we really don't do this very well. So first, thanks for coming on. But when we started thinking about an outline for this, I really wanted to define the problem. And when you guys think about what is wrong with the idea of wellness and well-being, because that name gets, I mean, I think we've all been in those sessions, it gets thrown around probably daily. I think I get an email daily from either my employer or the hospital where I work at claiming go be well. But what does that mean? And what's the problem with that term? So if I could just take like a 10,000 foot view. So I, I think the problem is exactly what you said, Andy, is the word wellness and well-being get thrown around, but there's no actual like meaning behind the word wellness and well-being. It's just a word. And so I feel like, especially in the time of COVID, but even prior to COVID, with all these regulations and door-to-antibiotics, door-to-balloon, door-to-needle, like all these metrics, like door-to-greet time that we're supposed to do and provide this phenomenal care to patients, our jobs are, at least to me, seem like they're turning into these like menial tasks and longer hours and poor staffing because we can't open up sections. There's... I feel like a lack of respect, not necessarily from our colleagues and our staff, but even from the patients that are like coming in because they're frustrated with the health system, not seeing them. We have more documentation. And I feel like when I first got into medicine, I remember the days of T-sheets and doing things on paper charts. And I felt like there was more of like a personalized experience with my patients. Like I was investing more in them. And now I feel like I've turned into this like glorified remedial kind of secretary that's just like documenting things for the sake of documenting. And then I keep hearing these words wellness and resiliency. And and I feel like people tell me I need to be more resilient. I need to be more resilient. And I'm starting to push back a little bit more and say, well, maybe we need to create a system that supports the things that I do better. And here's what I mean, like ordering me food when I'm getting crushed on a shift or giving me a plaque to tell me what a great job I did does not help me in my day-to-day work. It doesn't make me feel better, and it's not a pat on the back. I almost find it to be insulting, actually. What I want is a system that supports me in the things that I'm doing, right? I love my job. I love taking care of patients, 
But I feel like the issue is, is that we throw this word around and the people who are throwing this word around from top to bottom don't even know what it means. They just say it as a thing, as a kind of a checkbox, if you will, as opposed to helping me out and what I need to do. And so what you've seen me posting on social media is this concept of work-life balance, which I don't think exists, by the way. I actually hate that phrase. There's no such thing because there's going to be times that work is going to be busy and there's going to be times that life is going to be busy. And we have to actually take the initiative to set boundaries for ourselves to not bring work home and not bring home to work. And I know that that's just kind of lip service, but I think it's really, really important. So instead of like using your calendar to set just meetings or deadlines, maybe you should set your calendar to set times for family time or for a time to exercise or a time to food prep so that your calendar is not just all work, 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 but you're also including things that are meaningful to your wellness. So that's just kind of my, sorry for my five minute rant, but that's kind of like a place to start, I think, and probably a lot of fodder there for us to discuss. I would just say, yeah, you know, it's really funny. I think, you know, wellness, well-being type stuff really kind of was a grass grassroots movement five, six years ago. And it was in at that time, very well intended. And then it became such a hot button topic that it got a hold of itself in this system, which is already a system that's not really well run. And it just exploded into a, into a, a facade almost where, you know, Oh, if we just check these boxes, wellness will happen. And the reality is it's not that simple everyone's a little different. Everyone's, uh, has their own definitions. And, and I think it got lost really quickly after the initial kind of uprising of it, where it was really well intended that it got lost that, that initial meaning got lost. And now it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to wade through the waters of wellness, I guess. That is so true because, uh, when you talk about wellness and like you said, when they first started talking about it, it was well-meant intention. However, though, they realize that what's needed to actually make it happen, they cannot accomplish that. So it becomes a watered-down checkbox. And now, once they realize that, they start talking about resiliency. So like, oh, you doctors are not resilient enough, you know, because they cannot meet all the needs that needs to be in place to make us well. And it occurred to me about five years ago when they start talking about whole patient care, you know, that we have to address all the things the patient comes to the hospital for. And I looked in the mirror, I said, wait a minute, how can a doctor that's not whole or not well provide a whole patient care? That was an epiphany for me at that time. So I said to myself, something is wrong with this picture because we are not well. And a lot of the things that we go through as physicians, we tend to suffer in silence because of the taboo of saying like, oh, you know, I feel depressed or anxious or something like that. And you get taxed for that. So a lot of us tend to suffer in silence, and that's one of the major problems. So I said to myself that nobody can control my wellness or determine my wellness, but I myself as a physician need to understand that I'm not well by being open with myself, doing my own personal inventory to see where I'm at, and come up with a strategy to be able to address that. And I've done extensive research on this, and I actually have a book coming out in the next month or two that deals with this. How do we get to something that resembles wellness. I mean, I, I feel, I love what I do. First of all, let me just, I think every, all of our listeners know that. I mean, I love emergency medicine. I love academic emergency medicine, but we all work in broken systems. 
right? I mean, the American healthcare system as a whole is broken, and I have no doubt that all five of us on this call right now who are essentially in different systems, all of our systems are broken in some form or fashion as well, locally, whether it's the specific system or the regional healthcare or whatever. How can we, how can these systems, how can healthcare in general tell us to be well and promote our well-being when the system itself is broken? You talk about whole care. I mean, the system doesn't even allow for the provision of whole care, and yet that's the expectation upon us. What do we have to do to build the system back or just build it from the ground up so that there is actually provider wellness at the foundation? And whatever that means, and I'm sure we're going to get to it, get to that that meaning. I think it takes a collaborative effort. From my research and what we've been able to do in our own institution is the fact that the medical staff's structure itself became more engaged with this. Initially, when we talked about this about five years ago, nobody really wanted to fund it because everything requires money. And they kind of dance around it until we told them that this is very important for us to function as an institution, that you can't tell us to be give you like a whole patient care and get this good patient experience and we're not well. So by us pushing them, we're able to start actually a center for physician wellness in our own institution now. Staffed by, you know, clinical psychologists, about three of them, led by a physician. And they provide like free, about six counseling sections to any physician that's interested in it. But despite the fact that the resources are there, it's still underutilized because we're not using it and it's there for us. So a grassroots co- collaboration between the medical staff itself and the institution are the ones that's going to push that button to make it happen. Yeah, for me, I think this is going to require, for most health systems, this is going to require a massive paradigm shift. And that paradigm shift is going to have to be from something that's a checkbox done to physicians rather than something that is done to help improve the work environment and to check on the mental health of physicians. And remember, at the end of the day, what we do, the the patient is always the one in front of us. And it's kind of this gray area where we now become kind of the patient. And that requires a huge paradigm shift for administration and people to realize that is that if we're not well mentally, if we're burned out, if we are tired because of the system we're working in, are we really providing the best care we can for the patients, which is what we're there to do? And so therefore, in some kind of weird paradox, we now become kind of the patient. And so it's going to require a massive paradigm shift in hospital administration to not make it taboo to talk about depression, to not make it taboo to talk about anxiety, to not make it taboo to talk about burnout, and not be worried that you're going to lose your license because you talk about it. And I think Andy knows this, but I pretty, I'm pretty open about talking about my major depressive disorder and I have no problems talking about it. And I let my colleagues know like when I'm doing well and when I'm not doing well and I have people checking in on me, but it's because I took the initiative to create that culture. And so that's essentially what it is, is that we need to not be scared. And it takes a few of us to kind of lead the way and pave that path, whether that be with our colleagues, whether that be with administration. But I, I think if I could just answer the question, it's my initial statement is it's not a checkbox done to physicians. It is a paradigm shift that does things to help improve the work environment and the mental health of the physicians that are caring for the patients. Ding, ding, ding. No, I love that. Thinking that that we're the patients in this situation. Like we're the lesion that needs to be addressed. You just nailed that on the head because when you look at what a way to miss the boat when they were talking about physician resilience, they should be addressing physician wellness. 
and how do we help you to become whole and mentally solid to do your job versus, oh, you know, they need to be resilient. Let's start some resilient courses for them to make them stronger and they're not strong enough. For every doctor I know to make it to residency, medical school, you have to have intestinal fortitude <laughs> to survive, you know. I remember during my surgical rotation when they tell you, like, um, tighten your sphincter tone and take it as a man. You know, you can't tell me I'm not resilient to be able to handle that, you know. You just got to do what you got to do. And now they're becoming to understand the fact that it transcends what they're trying to push to us. They need to focus on us. However, though we have to be part of the solution in terms of identifying what we need and making sure they support it. So from a listener standpoint, how would one of our listeners need to take this talk to start that internal discussion with themselves? How did each of you have that with yourselves? And how do we encourage others to have that kind of conversation with themselves? Because I think it, it starts with the individual unit. And then once that person is inspired to change, they can lead to systemic change. How, how does that start? If it's okay, I'd like to start with this. I mean, I think the first step is to just recognize the signs and symptoms. I think, again, it's it's like lip service things that we talk about and think that burnout, fatigue, being tired, flip-flopping days to nights, having to work holidays, like all these things, like the microaggressions of the job that we do, I don't care how resilient you are, is going to lead to some form of uh, exhaustion and burnout. And so I think it's like the first step is to just have your finger on the pulse of where you are. And so things like looking for emotional exhaustion, are you being cynical uh, in the statements that you make? I'm guilty of this stuff. I make cynical statements all the time. And that's kind of one of my barometers of knowing because that's just not how I'm built. I'm there to help people. Feelings of like reduced accomplishment, like feeling sorry for yourself, um, not wanting to go into work, sleeping more than you normally would, or not wanting to engage with others, like kind of isolating even more than we already do. I think these are just some of the signs. And so I think that's the first step. Like you want tangible something to do. The first step is to recognize the symptoms. You just nailed it on the head right there. But I went through a lot of this in my research. And basically, when I had to have my own conversation with myself, and I realized that I wasn't well. And how did I find this out? You know, during COVID, even before COVID, most of us are already struggling in terms of being balanced, lifestyle, dealing with some kind of anxiety from the job itself, all the mundane tasks that we have to handle every day. And someone comes to you like, oh, your patient experience course sucks. And I'm like, but I'm doing the best I can, you know? So you have all these things that just piles up on us. Then COVID came and it's like putting gasoline on the fire. And I was burnt out. I was morally injured and I was heading towards major depression that I come home and I yell at my kids for no reason. And I cut them no slack. And one day I came home, my wife was like, I need to talk to you. Like, I'm tired of managing you and trying to manage your kids because something has changed about you. And I sat down and I just like, wow, I'm actually making my family suffer from what I was going through. Then I had to tell my wife that for a whole year, I wasn't able to sleep because every time I close my eyes, I see myself on a ventilator dying from COVID. And I'm sure a lot of us are going through that, that I can't say my final goodbyes. So I have to figure out how do I get myself together. And as I was, you know, when I get to this point, I realized that something has to change. And I started doing my own research. And that's why I came, came up with the content, I mean, the, the concept of how do you become whole? How do you become well? And during my research, I came up with my, what I call my five pillars of wholeness, which is more physical wellness, 
emotional wellness, mental wellness, spiritual wellness, and social wellness. So I think I call this my five pillars of wholeness because for us to be whole and to be well, we have to be balanced in all the dimension of wholeness. But the first step is, like you said, Sally, is to identify that first. Without identification, you can't move forward. And if I could just add one more thing before I let you guys kind of chime in. I put this in the show notes, and if you guys wouldn't mind putting this in the show notes for the people who are listening to the podcast, there was a study done early on in the pandemic looking at 200 frontline EM docs. So people think like, oh, this isn't my problem or this doesn't happen to me. This was done in both academic and community shops. I happen to be in a community shop, but I know academics has its own issues because I worked in that for six years as well. Over 75% said that they were resilient, which I think holds true to what we've said in our conversation is most of us who've gone through medical school and residency are pretty resilient, especially those of us that happen to work in emergency medicine, I would say are probably even more so resilient than maybe some other specialties. No knock on other specialties, but I do think we're a very resilient group. Most people reported experiencing stress, anxiety, and fear. 50% had strain on the relationships with their family and friends. 50% experienced isolation. This is just at the beginning of the pandemic. So despite being a resilient group, the majority of us experience stress, anxiety, fear, and concerns about our personal safety, which then puts us at a higher risk over the long run for burnout. So this is a very real thing. And this is what I call the collateral damage of COVID-19, is that It's not COVID itself that's doing this, but because of the stresses that COVID is putting on us, we are just scratching the surface of mental health and the issues that are going to be coming down the line from this. Yeah, and let's let's drill down on that a little more because nationwide, if not nationwide, certainly regionally, we're facing yet another surge of COVID. And COVID exposed so many fault lines within the healthcare system and EM specifically, and it was a real dichotomy. On one hand, we're struggling with PPE and, and are we going to get our family sick and how do we manage this? On the other hand, we're being propped up as you know the heroes and the front line and, and the saving grace. Now, that has, I feel, crumbled and we've gotten back to status quo, if not maybe worse, because now we're facing misinformation and everything else that goes along with COVID. But what was it about the initial surge? And then the continued onslaught of COVID that has has really brought wellness so far into the the forefront for what we're dealing with. And and when I say wellness, it's really a a complete lack of wellness. There was an article I published early this year, actually in the South Journal, EP Monthly, called Invincible No More. And I talked about the ordeal of how we, as emergency physicians, initially we felt invincible because we can we have this kind of badass bravado that we have that we can handle anything that bring to us. But then this COVID stuff, initially, you know, we deal with things where we know we have a cure for, we have a treatment for. But COVID, we got nothing. So it's like we're just throwing things at everything, and we're already stressed out. So eventually, we got to a point where we have some kind of a solution, some medication, and the vaccine came, and we were able to exhale a little bit. But then to realize that we're going back into the conundrum that we just left behind us is mentally stressing. And what happened if someone survived through the first, second, and third wave of the COVID pandemic, then this fourth one is going to break you. Because it's like you're looking for a somewhere, but it's not there. And that's a problem. In, in the ER world, we are built off of being able to respond to a lot of different things, you know, that, that anytime, any place, any day type of mentality. But we're also 
very shortly involved and we're very good at like, okay, I can get through anything for a little bit. But the problem with COVID is it has been a problem. It's not just, it's, it's not like chest pains. We don't see a flood of chest pains beyond anything we've ever seen before that sustains for a year straight because chest pain comes in, you know, every now and then patient here and there, blah, blah, blah. COVID was a massive influx of something we've never seen. We learned, and then it's still here and it's not, it's not going away. And we've never had to mentally do that before. And so it's completely new and different. And then we have to now learn how to process something that we weren't really good at processing long-term stuff anyways. Yeah. I think the best way I've heard it explained is, is that we think about mass casualty events is that those are isolated 12 to 24 hour events that are terrible and people have PTSD and long-term effects from, and we have been in a mass casualty event in some way, shape or form since March of 2020. Yep. And so, and we're a group that are really good at the bounce back, but when your bounce back is to come back to the same mass casualty event, that's still in progress that now we have no control over. That's what we've been doing for a year and a half. And so I think that's where we're starting to see the cracks come out. It's, the, the, it's getting exposed to where we're all good for one mass casualty event. But a week of it, a month of it, a year of it, it's just exponentially worse. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was trying to say. <laughs> much, better, much better put. I mean, the other thing is, is like one thing we pride ourselves in as emergency physicians is being agile, kind of like the MacGyver, right? Uh, Jack of all trades, like able to take whatever's coming in the door. And so I, I think that requires quite a bit of growth mindset as opposed to like a fixed mindset. And I feel like with wellness, it's not that wellness isn't good. It's just never been good. It's just kind of been this thing that started, as you said, at the beginning of this podcast as a grassroots thing with good intentions behind it, but there's been no growth with it. And so now it takes a pandemic of 18 months of seeing the same over and over and over again to realize the issues with wellness and the things that we can uh, or we need to fix within the system. So it's almost like wellness has been in this fixed mindset while the rest of us are trying to be in this growth mindset. And it's time to kind of shift that wellness over to the growth mindset as well. And so as we were talking about, the first steps are recognizing it. The next steps are getting involved with your administration and getting in on those committees and having those conversations. Because a lot of these people, again, no offense to anybody, but they're suits that sit behind a desk. They're not down in the trenches or the front lines, or if they have been, they haven't been in a long time. They have their own measures that they have to meet, and the people that are on the front lines, which is who they should be taking care of, are not where their focus is. And so that would be the next step is getting involved in these committees and helping them realize the um, extent of this problem. That's a, that's a great point. I, I, I thought about this quite a bit too, and the fact that a lot of our leaders, people that are making these higher level decisions, likely because they're very good at what they do or we're good at some point, they also, they're not having to do this over and over and over because if they work, you know, two shifts a month, three shifts a month, it's easy to bounce back from that. Well, it's not easy. It's easier than if you're working 10, 12, 16, 20 shifts a month over and over and over. And um, I think that's a great point is getting them involved, at least to understand. Yeah. In addition to that, though, for us, that's involving education and training future leaders and I think there's something we can do as well to help our current trainees. 
we, like you said, Sal, earlier on, that the schedules we deal with, days, night, back and forth like that. Is there something we can do if we've identified that as a significant contributor that affects our well-being? What can we do for our residents by saying maybe we will not have your schedule fluctuate day to night? Maybe we have you for one month, you just do days. The next month, you do afternoons. And the next month, you do nights. To kind of give them some, shall I say, semblance of constancy in terms of the way they work. You come in one month, you do all days. The next month, you do all afternoon. Because it helps them in terms of their wellness as well. Because as we're working as professional attendants now, we're dealing with this. And we don't have that luxury to have that kind of schedule. Can I make one more suggestion? So I think a reason well-being and resiliency and all this stuff is coming to the forefront is because we are in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of, for some of us, our fourth or fifth wave of this surge. I think a lot of us are kind of frazzled. We're tired. We're exhausted. And it's really now become a pandemic of the unvaccinated And so I've really had to like think about this. And I've had a lot of conversations with patients coming into the emergency department, not only the ones that have COVID that are unvaccinated, but the ones that are coming for other reasons that are unvaccinated. And so I've I've like really thought about this, like, where can I make a difference? Because we know that there's no like actual treatment that we can just give them this pill or this shot and they all of a sudden are going to get better. Sure, we got steroids, we got tocilizumab and a couple other things, oxygen and good supportive care. But really, the best treatment is prevention. And so what can we do in the emergency department that gives us a sense of ownership of this and a sense of a meaning? And what I thought about is just in some of my conversations with patients is, why can't we just offer the vaccine to people in the ED? Why can't we have this conversation with them like we do depression screening, right? Or human trafficking screening. Why can't we do a vaccine screening and have a shift? We're actually vaccinating those that are unvaccinated and in a sense, improving the uh, decrease in community spread. That to me is like gives me way more meaning than seeing somebody reflexively coming in with COVID who's not vaccinated because they did their own research, which basically means they watched some crappy video on YouTube, right? That's what they mean when they say that. But they have so much disinformation. And so I find that like many things in life that we talk about silence equals violence. Like you got to be the voice of reason. You've got to speak up. And so just like we're doing this in other parts of what's going on in the world, we have to do the same thing. And we know that vaccines aren't a hundred percent, but we know if we can reduce replication, we reduce mutation. If we reduce mutation, we therefore reduce spread, right? And breakthrough cases. And so why can't we speak up to administration and maybe offer to do something in our EDs for these populations that don't have health care or are scared or distrust health care to do the thing that actually makes a difference? So instead of seeing them later on, we're actually doing something proactively. To me, that would give me a lot of meaning in the job that I do in addition to like what I already do. Sal, you're absolutely right, because I've had the privilege to be able to do that for the past month. And nothing is more satisfying. I mean, truly nothing right now to me is more satisfying than being able to vaccinate a couple people that have not yet been vaccinated, maybe because they didn't know how to go about it. They they just had poor healthcare access. And I, and I work in an area with relatively poor healthcare access for one reason or the other. And you know, we're, we're giving a the single shot. It's not maybe as ideal as some of the, the double uh, vaccines, but hey, it's it's a heck of a lot better than nothing. Patients are appreciative and it's also a chance to educate. 
which is really beneficial. And even if somebody doesn't take it, at least I feel as though maybe I have made a dent in at least a reconsideration. And I can state my case in an educated manner in a healthcare setting, which provides some opportunity potentially to change change their mind. It's a ripple effect because if you convince one person, that person then goes and talks to the rest of their family members and their friends who then are now more likely to go get vaccinated. And then they go and talk to their friends and family. And so it becomes this huge ripple effect. It's more than just that one person that you're affecting. This is a huge impact for the community to be able to have the opportunity to do this. In our last couple of minutes, I want to bring this back around. I think you both have some tips and tricks that you've done personally that works well for individual wellness. Certainly systemic change is necessary. We've talked about that, but what are your tips and tricks to make yourself well that the rest of us maybe can embody a little bit too? Well, for me, you know, based on me identifying, like what Sal said earlier, the most important step is to identify that there is a problem. And most of the time, by by virtue of the way we are built, we just keep going and keep going and keep going and never try to stop. Now and then you just have to stop and look in the mirror and to occasionally check yourself. I have, there are several re, I mean, resources out there that you can use to actually ch- do like a wellness check on yourself to see where you are. We have a workforce that requires a lot of mental fortitude to survive in the ER. And you're dealing with like emotions that goes back and forth. So being able to have a balance in that avenue itself will help a lot. A lot of us suffer from anxiety, but we don't like to talk about it. So we have to be open and talk about it. And it's important for us as emergency physicians to do wellness check on each other. So I go around the ER and ask my colleague, how are you doing today? You know, how's everything going with you? You doing good? Is there something we need to know? You know, what can we do? you know, to make you better? Or is there something we need to know? So he's doing that wellness check on each other. That's where you're going to identify someone that may need help because we don't want to talk about it. And that's a problem. For me, I think you have to take ownership for your well-being because no one else is going to do it for you. And this is something I've been working on for the last few years. And it came from this concept. And I mentioned this earlier in the podcast of uh, work-life balance, which I don't think exists, by the way. I think it's a, it's a lack of priorities is what people are seeing and a lack of setting boundaries. And so once a month, I sit down and I think to myself, what are the three big priorities in my life? What are the three things that no matter what happens, I will invest time myself in all aspects into? And over and over again, it's usually something to do with family and friends. It has something to do with my own health, whether that be mental, physical, emotional, spiritual. And then it's also usually reading something that helps me improve as a person. Over and over again, those are the three things. And so what I've started doing now is I, and I put this in the show notes as well, is I created this little four boxed thing. And in the top left, I have high priority, low time spent. And I have that in yellow because that's something that's one of my big priorities that I've set as important and I'm not investing the time in it. In the top right, I have a green box that says high priority, high time spent, which means it's exactly where it needs to be. If you go down, the left lower box is low priority, low time spent, and that's also green because that's where that needs to be. So things like checking email or getting on social media, those are not high priority things. So I need to not be spending very much time on that. And then in the bottom right, I have in a red box, low priority, high time spent. So these are things that I keep doing over and over and over again that are wasting my time. And so the goal is, is to get your high priority stuff 
which are the things you sit down and review once a month because we all get busy, life shifts, we have different things that come up at different times into the high time spent and the low priority stuff into the low time spent. This is going to require some reflection. It's going to require you like sitting down. It's a work in progress. Maybe something you thought was an important priority. Maybe it isn't. But I think the most important thing here is that it's learning to say no to some things because I think if you say yes to everything, then everything has equal value. If you start saying no to some things, you're now actually giving value to the things that are important and lesser value to the things that are not important. And I know we're all yes people and we want to say yes and be helpful, but you have to give yourself a break. You have to give yourself time off. You have to spend time with your family. You have to spend time in your priorities. And this is just a construct I've created that's kind of liquid and always fluctuating, but has really kind of been a a game changer for me in terms of figuring out what my priorities are and what to invest my time in and what not to invest my time in. Just to jump on that, when I go around and talk about wellness at retreats, I use what I call my, I don't like work-life balance. I call it life balance because my work is part of my life. So what I do is I break my day into 24 hours and I divide that 10 hours for the job and I have 14 hours for the rest of the day. And I put everything in buckets And the goal is to make sure that whatever you put into that bucket, whatever time you allot to that, make sure you accomplish that every day. And that's what I used to hold myself accountable. I call it my life bucket or 24-hour buckets. And putting things in buckets, my sleep is eight hours, I put it in that bucket. My goal is to make sure that I get my eight hours sleep uninterrupted every day. If I have to do my exercise, if it's 45 minutes, it's in that bucket. Time with my wife, time with my kids, they're all in that bucket. And time to just sit back and just be still. It's in that bucket. So if you plan your bucket right and have a goal to accomplish that bucket on a daily basis, I think that would be a very good start to you getting to that point where you have a balanced life. Well, Sal and Double A, we really appreciate both of you coming on. I think that we could extend this to multiple conversations and you've both been invited back. You just don't know it yet. You'll get a calendar invite from me. I could listen to both of these guys talk for like hours. This has been amazing. A hundred percent. We look forward to future conversations with both of you. For those that are listening, don't forget to check us out on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget that we are the official podcast of the ACOAP. So head on over to acop.org for more details about the organization and to attend one of its future CME offerings. Mm -hmm.